Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Future in Review podcast. Uh, I am here this week with Evan Anderson, who is uh, the CEO of our Invent IP initiative focused on fighting nation-sponsored theft of intellectual property. He's also an analyst for the Global Report, which he wrote this week uh, on the topic of Europe's coming energy crisis, uh, or current and, and emerging energy crisis, I should say. Um, and uh, I'm here to talk a little bit more with him today about what, what, where things stand today and what to expect this winter, uh, which is the subject of his, his report this week. So thank, welcome, Evan. Great to have you thank back you. here. Nice to be here. Um, so I'm curious if you could tell us, just start off by telling us a little bit more about, you know, you've just done a, a, a pretty deep dive on research of where things stand today. What is the current situation in Europe? Yes, yeah, so, I think most people have probably, you know, seen the headlines um, for the past few months, really, um, all across the summer. Uh, and the, the essentially where things stand is, as expected, um, the Russians have cut off a lot of gas and they look like they're going to cut it all off. Um, Putin's making various demands that I don't think anyone should listen to. Um, I don't think that they will. I think the real question in Europe right now is what do we do about the fact that a huge amount of gas has been cut off from Russia? Um, so essentially, they're living with the consequences of a series of bad political and or kind of corruption-based, hello, Gerd Schroeder, um, choices uh, that led them to be more dependent on Russian sources for gas. Uh, and there's lots of different reasons that happened. What matters more is that now that we're in a position where the entire continent needs to get off of Russian gas, what will it look like, right? And so as everybody probably knows at this point, um, prices have gone sky high. They've actually begun to taper back, which is great. I think they're down um, about 9.3% over the last week, which is a lot, and that's really helpful. And that'll hopefully help uh, help a lot of folks with their you know daily energy needs and, and mm. issues. Uh, but we are heading into the winter. That will be peak demand time. Um, so Europe has been preparing. Uh, there's a lot of different leaders in Europe, including Ursula von der Leyen, and you know each national leader. They've all they're all aware of the problem. So it's not some sort of sudden surprise. They've been aware that it could be a problem since last January. And they've been working very hard on it, as far as I can tell, for the last six months or so. So things are kind of moving along. Um, I think one thing that people aren't talking about in kind of the broader media world is that, yes, there's a crisis. Um, and this was part of the point of the piece this week. Yes, there's a crisis. Yes, there's a lot of need for um, solutions to the energy crisis. However, I think um, the idea that Europe is going to go into some sort of, you know, recession so bad that they can never pull out of it for years actually strikes me based on the research I did for this piece as incorrect. Um, and so I think that there's a lot of options. They're exercising some of those options and we should get into that. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that there's a more hopeful story that emerges when you look into the data than when you look at some of the headlines where it feels like, oh God, you know, it's inevitable right. and, and they're gonna be stuck with this. So what is the actual gap that we're looking at here? Yeah, so um, Russia essentially was supplying somewhere between 35 and 40%. I've seen different estimates. 40% is usually that kind of higher estimate. Um, mm -hmm. I was talking stuff that looked more like 35% um, and often do. Anyhow, uh, they were supplying a significant, quite a significant amount of Russia's, Russian gas to Europe. Um, so, and a large percentage of what Europe consumes um, year over year. So that's 30 to 35% of total European consumption. Yeah, 35 to 40% of total European consumption was coming straight out of Russia. Um, the last pipeline to shut off essentially is Nord Stream 1. Um, you know, we're already long ago had issues with 
stuff getting transmit transferred through via Ukraine. Um, obviously, that's not happening anymore. The Ukrainians stopped buying Russian gas as well. Um, so, you, you know, all of Europe is looking at a 40% deficit, say, in their gas supply uh, for each year. And so right now we're in the middle, we're in the shoulder season, um, but it's a winter, so peak season, shoulder season between 2022 and 2023. Um, and one bright point is that this didn't happen for Europe right at the beginning of the year. So um, it's complicated. I think there's a lot of different valid opinions on all sides, but there is a reason that Europe stalled on buying Russian gas, on ceasing to buy Russian gas, and mm-hmm. this is it, right? They were worried about this. Um, it's a, it's a huge, it's a huge risk for them. Yeah. So now they're halfway through the calendar year or more with September, right? And they're mm-hmm. most of the gas is cut off, but there's a little bit left coming through. that's probably also going to be cut off. Um, they've had half a year to prepare while right. still buying Russian gas, which is not great if you're Ukraine. It's not great for that whole effort to sanction Russian gas, but it does help Europe get through the winter. And I think that's why they were doing it. Um, they also have a whole lot more in line um, in terms of how to make up for this than they used to. So um, say one full calendar year ago, there wasn't really a plan in place as far as I know to do really much of anything. And they were sort of mm-hmm. just not expecting that Russian gas would be turned off at all. Yeah. So, so let's talk, let's talk a little bit more about that. So of that 30 to or 35 to 40% that you mentioned, how mm-hmm. much do you think they have already made up or have sources coming online to already make up for and what gap is left? Yeah. So we actually took a look at that and uh, there's something kind of a new concept in Europe, um, at least it's been around for a while, but we have these floating um, plants for LNG to convert, right? And so they've just started bringing in, they're, they're buying up the whole market, right? So you've got these floating LNG plants, they're on a ship, essentially, it's like an LNG mm-hmm. carrier, um, but it can actually process the gas, and they have a capacity. So this is all measured, at least in Europe, um, it gets complicated because of the metric system versus the feet that we are still using somehow in the US. But um, this is all calculated in BCM, which is billion cubic meters of gas okay. uh, when it comes to, you know, a national consumption, et cetera. Um, LNG itself is measured in uh, metric tons, et cetera, but uh, we don't need to get into the details. The point is Russia was providing about 158 BCM. Um, so that's the deficit that you look at right from the get-go. And mm-hmm. then the question is, how do you kind of shave off different pieces of that until you're at least closer to your goal of not needing any of that um, and having replaced it? And so Right now, all around Europe, um, many different countries, many different consortiums, there's one that's Estonia working with Finland, um, are all financing, buying, leasing, whatever it's going to be, these floating, um, these floating LNG uh, ships that can process LNG coming from overseas, bring it into Europe and replace Russian gas that way. Um, meanwhile, there's about three countries, really, that have just brought in um, a lot more inflow via pipeline. Um, and other forms of delivery of gas that was kind of already being produced, but has been increased in its production. Um, and so, so to kick us off here, um, Norway has raised its uh, quantity of gas that's bringing into Europe, exporting to Europe, even though it's in Europe, um, by about eight BCM. So it's like, okay, there's a little cutoff. Um, mm-hmm. The UK has just brought two eight, new North Eight out of, what was the total split? So eight out of 158, 100, right? So it's right. Just so a that's piece, a th- but it helps. Yeah, piece, but you know, mm-hmm. bit by bit. So, and what so about Norway, and what about those LNG processing plants? What what percentage do you, do you think they make up? So, um, let me get into that in a second. Let me just finish. So, okay. um, with the UK, they just brought on two North Sea gas fields, um, and that's helping. So that's about three point five for half the year more BCM. That means okay. we can probably for seven or more over a couple of years 
um, BCM out of the UK that didn't exist before, that's good. Azerbaijan okay. has just raised a little bit of their deliveries. Um, it's not by a lot, I think it's about two BCM, um, but the idea would be hopefully that could be increased, although there's you know a whole new conflict is breaking out in Azerbaijan right now. Uh, it appears that they're invading Armenia. So we'll see what happens there. But um, in general, the, the inflows from pre-existing suppliers within Europe or right on the edge of Europe have actually increased and that's good. And then all of these new floating plants, um, what it looks like from everything that we could discover, it looks like we're looking at about 27 BCM, something around those okay. that area, um, this year. And that's um, even prorated. So, you know, if they have something that's that's got five BCM capacity for the year, we prorated it for whenever the thing was coming online. Um, you know, you get four months out of the year. And so all of that will be online next year, which is also the second half of our winter season in Europe. Right. Um, and, but then a whole lot more is coming. So Germany has been working hard on this. I think they have three up right now and they're looking to do six and each one is five BCM. So okay. over time, you know, by the end of the summer of 2023, I think we'll be in a much better position. And right now for winter, I think we're in a surprisingly good position compared to what one might have expected looking back a year ago. Well, so why is that? Because what all, uh, all of what you've described to me so far, from what I can tell, makes up maybe about maximum 58 out of 158, right? Yes. Yeah. So so by next year, you would hope that just these flow, you know, just increased capacity in these floating terminals, et cetera, might have you somewhere more near 60 or something like that. However, gas is not the only way to get things done. So over the long term, there are many different ways that you can change your energy mix and stop mm. burning so much natural gas just for electricity. So even what what the entire EU is looking at right now um, is changing the mix, being more efficient. And I think that that's where this whole really kind of hinges. So you can you can chip away at the deficit in two different ways. You can increase production and supply, mm -hmm. which they're doing, and I think they're doing better than I would have expected. Um, they're moving fast. Two, you can reduce consumption, and they have right. been doing that. That's very difficult and it's very unpleasant because you have to shut down factories. I mean, we've been seeing this in Germany, right? Um, you have to you have to harm things in order to decrease consumption when the consumption demand is already there, right? Um, and so they're trying right now to shut down factories in favor of households for heating, but you you don't need gas for electricity necessarily. You definitely in many systems need it for heating. Mm -hmm. So prioritize gas for heating and then use other sources perhaps for other things like generating electricity, you'll be in a much better position. And so that's where I think Europe really has an opportunity here, um, but it will take a lot of coordination. So France has a lot of nuclear power. Their current mix is already 67% nuclear um, and they are able to bring on, they're actually planning to bring on all of their nuclear capacity for the winter. That's okay. fantastic. They also have 92% storage capacity full on their nat gas. So that's a really good position to be in, but they will probably have to help support other countries in Europe that are not in such a good position. Germany is also in an impressive place on storage. I think it's at 89% now. Um, and we're still a little bit out from when the cold weather will really hit, um, but they haven't turned their nuke plants back on. They're talking about coal. Um, in the Netherlands, they have a big gas field, but it causes earthquakes. So I think they're understandably very uh, reluctant to bring that capacity back online. Um, I mean, so there's the a heat, lot earthquakes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's there's some earthquake problems that I think um, I think it's defensible to say we you know they've had lots of infrastructure damage, no deaths, but I think it's defensible to say we don't want to create earthquakes in our country. Um, but something has to happen, right? Something's got to yeah. give. So you can reduce consumption by another chunk, and again, that helps bring it down so that the amount you would really need is much lower, um, and and 
call it whatever. They're looking at 15% is what the uh, what the EU is looking at, at, at cutting. Okay, so hopefully they'll get there. I think some countries are already there. Some countries are lagging behind, but say you're somewhere in that range. Mm-hmm. Now you've got, you know, another 15 B- BCMs that you don't need. So uh, yeah. it's all back of the envelope math, but, but chipping away at the bigger problem is great. And if you can increase nuclear capacity. That's what I was going to ask, because that sounds like the most. The easy, over time. Like, like if we, if there are existing, I know that there's a lot of, a lot of, you know, controversy around nuclear as a power generation source, yes. but if you're in an emergency situation and you are able to kind of overcome some of that, at least for the short term, what additional nuclear capacity is available? Yeah. So Germany has plants that they've been planning on shuttering for a long time. Um, they, I've seen a lot of back and forth, so it's unclear whether they're going to run them. Um, they originally there was a lot of talk about the fact that they couldn't safely, and then it turned out they could safely, but they weren't sure if they wanted to. It's not entirely clear what their plan is there, but um, I think if they can do it safely, they ought to, because you cannot build nuclear plants overnight in the same way that you cannot easily deploy renewables overnight. And by yeah. overnight, I mean literally, right? You can bring in a ship that processes it, processes LNG, and takes deliveries overnight. Overnight, yeah. Um, yeah, nearly. But it but uh, it takes but it takes ten years to to build it. You know, a solar exactly. farm. So I yeah, think, I think this is an obvious um, you know stepping stone in the direction of if you don't build out your renewable capacity or your nuclear capacity, both of which are relatively carbon emission low, then you will wind up in this story. You know, if you if you have issues with Russia or whoever, uh, you will wind up emitting a lot more carbon. So I think Europeans have a choice there. You know, if they're going to burn coal in Germany, which they are going to, in order to to you know use coal get to through stop the winter, yeah, this winter get through this winter, isn't it better to run the nuclear plant if it's safe? You know, certainly you shouldn't run one if it's you know in disrepair. But uh, that's up to the German government. They've been kind of back and forth on that. If it's you know perfectly capable of generating generating electricity safely, I would rather you run a nuke plant in any part of the world than a coal plant. And so Germans are going to have to kind of figure that out. There's a, you know, a strong faction and the Green Party is, is very strong in Germany that are right. very much against emissions. And many of them are against nuclear, but that is what the choice is coming down to. And so. So, I but think, what, you know, ca- I, I'm sorry if you said this, but I think I missed it in your, in your answer. What, capa- what level of capacity do you think that could make up? Of that? That's hard to say. I don't know. And so I'll just, you know, always say when you don't know something, I have no <laughs> idea what capacity the German nuclear industry right. could make up. Um, all right fair it would it would make a big difference yeah so i mean so i think you know i think we've done a good job of outlining like a path forward for like the least possible uh energy crisis this winter i'm curious i want to switch gears a little bit and talk about my favorite topic which is uh international subterfuge of (laughs) political alliances um and i want to you know you talk you you, you wrote a lot in this week's report about the Crink Alliance, which we've covered on this podcast before, China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea working together uh, to advance authoritarianism and their business interests collectively throughout the world. Um, and I'm curious, and military interests, I should add, and I'm curious how that applies to the situation. What's going on there? Yeah, I mean, it's been an interesting year for the Crink Alliance, right? So um, that's a term just for viewers that don't know what we're on about. That's a term that we coined at SNS because we noticed those countries working together um, long before people kind of talked about it publicly. It was clear that they were in an, you know, an informal alliance. So um, 
it all started a long time ago, really, with various forms of cooperation that were good for, you know, making it very difficult for other countries, particularly democracies in the world, to stop various things from happening. Um, so they're trading Scud missiles to Iran and North Korea, et cetera, uh, back in the 90s. And this year, it's been really interesting to watch how it's evolved. So Russia used to be the arms exporter to everyone else in that alliance, right? China, <laughs> North Korea, and Iran um, back in the 90s had, had very little in terms of high-tech military capability, and Russia really did. Um, now we're seeing the kind of the opposite side of that coin, which is a wild swing um, over just, you know, a couple decades. So Russia now is pretty battered in Ukraine and is requesting, you know, getting drones, um, higher tech drones from Iran, which I believe they've already taken delivery on quite a few. Um, they're taking, you know, artillery shells and kind of more basic equipment from North Korea. Um, so the, the military flows are going the other way, which is weird. Mm -hmm. uh, and new to see, but uh, the other what thing about the energy? I would say more important is that um, people have probably seen kind of the headlines about, so, you know, after the sanctions packages went into place for Russian fuel, um, the Russians just immediately started selling uh, all of their gas and, and so natural gas and, and oil um, to both India and China, and China's been buying a huge amount. Um, and it makes sense because I think they're getting preferred deals so why not, right? Take it, it's their, it's their ostensible ally. They're already supporting Russia in other ways. They're running military exercises with them. So they'll buy Russian gas. And the funny thing is it creates this bizarre sort of gas laundering scheme. So China is very adept at this kind of stuff and they've been enjoying this for quite a few months now where they buy very cheap gas. Prices are really high, so we'll start mm -hmm. there, right? Prices are, are astronomically high for history. Right. So the Chinese- But are Russia's giving them a deal. Mm -hmm. They get a deal from Russia. Russia still gets a lot of money because gas prices are high in general. So Russia gets what they want. China gets what they want because they get gas at a discount from market rates. They keep that gas and then they just take whatever they're buying from other countries around the world and sell it to Europe at an additional markup. So it's a kind of a triple whammy um, if you're worried about the fate of democracy because the money's all flowing the wrong direction. And yeah. so if you care about the situation in Ukraine, then Russia's getting a whole lot of money out of this and we haven't really stopped them from selling. And China. And if you care about the situation in China, then they're making a killing selling effectively not selling Russian gas, but buying Russian gas and selling other people's gas you yeah. know, and prices up uh, and kind of enjoying that wild ride and really taking money out of Europe and moving it back to China um, and out of the pockets of Europeans, right? Everyday Europeans, just as much as businesses. So uh, right. it, it's a good way for the alliance to put the squeeze on the Western world pretty hard. Uh, and it's obviously it is putting the squeeze on us pretty hard. So I think that that's kind of you know, the back and forth here that we're getting is one, I think we'll get Europe through this winter without um, the kind of horrific recession that some people are predicting, um, or some sort of energy crisis that leaves people in the dark freezing, right? I don't think that's going to happen. I think actually, with some with some cooperation, I mean, the US is also boosting a huge amount of LNG support to Europe. Um, and we have been for a while. Um, and that was always a good plan because the idea was to help wean them off of Russian gas. So, you know, with cooperation and working together, I think we're gonna be in a lot better position than, than the darkest predictions are, are calling for Europe this winter. I think people are gonna get through it just fine, but there will be a lot of harm, economic harm. Um, so gas bills will continue to be high, but not, you know, so bad that it drives the entire continent into poverty. I, I've seen a lot of kind of extreme predictions um, in various publications and online, you know, people were really worried about that. So I think that's not gonna happen. But we are lining the pockets of some folks that we probably don't want to line the pockets of. Right. So we might want to figure that out. And I actually concluded on that point because I think that there are a number of different ways that, that smart people can come up with to sort of fix that. 
Um, it doesn't necessarily require that we abandon the project of helping Europe deal with its energy crisis. Um, I think that there are ways to put in very targeted sanctions, et cetera, uh, to stop the kind of laundering trade. <clears throat> and that's more of a diplomatic question. All right. Well, this has been super helpful, Evan. Thank you so much for your research and your analysis. Um, if you are not already a member of the Strategic News Service Global Report, which we publish, uh, you should become one. You'll get all of this in-depth analysis in your inbox every week focused on the future of technology and the global economy. Um, and you will also get the chance to hang out with Evan and I in virtual and hopefully eventually real settings uh, on a more regular basis. So we really hope you'll... <laughs> what did you say? I said we promise we're fun, we, even if we yeah. are talking about tough issues. We like to talk about dark things, but we have a good time doing it. Uh, Ed, thanks so much for, for joining us again. Looking forward Thank to you. having you back again in the future. Have a good one.